You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles together this morning. We turn for our Old Testament reading to Job chapter 13, and our New Testament reading is from 1 Peter 5, the verses 6 to 11. First, then, we turn to Job 13. For the context here, you may know that Job is interacting with one of his so-called friends who is pressing him on the matter of the nature and origin of his suffering. My eyes have seen all this, my ears have heard and understood it. What you know, I also know, I am not inferior to you. But I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. You, however, smear me with lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. If only you would be altogether silent. For you, that would be wisdom. Hear now my argument. Listen to the plea of my lips. Will you speak wickedly on God's behalf? Will you speak deceitfully for him? Will you show him partiality? Will you argue the case for God? Would it turn out well if he examined you? Could you deceive him as you might deceive men? He would surely rebuke you if you secretly showed partiality. Would not his splendor terrify you? Would not the dread of him fall on you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Keep silent. Let me speak. Then that come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless man would dare come before him. Listen carefully to my words. Let your ears take in what I say. Now that I have prepared my case, I know I will be vindicated. Can anyone bring charges against me? If so, I will be silent and die. Only grant me these two things, O God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me and I will answer, or let me speak and you reply. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Will you torment a windblown leaf? Will you chase after dry chaff? Or you write down bitter things against me and make me inherit the sins of my youth? You fasten my feet in shackles. You keep close watch on all my paths by putting marks on the soles of my feet. So man wastes away like something rotten, like a garment eaten by moths. Let's follow our Old Testament reading, then we turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, the verses 6 to 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, 
that he may lift you up in due time, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. I preach to you this morning from the word of our God, as you find it in Psalm 13. For the director of music, a psalm of David, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. For he has been good to me. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, become a Christian and all of your troubles will be over. Have you ever heard that particular sales pitch? If you go to China, you can hear it all the time. One of the favorite tactics of so-called evangelists there is to tell people that Christianity is the cure for all of their ills. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ and you will become filthy rich. You will experience robust health. You will achieve business bonanza. You'll wake up to a nice or softer husband And you'll come home to perfect kids. Christianity is the elixir for all of your ills and all of your problems. Now, of course, beloved, that message which tends to be so popular elsewhere is nothing new to us. This sort of message has been around for a long time in England as well as in North America. In our neck of the woods, we call it victorious Christian living. And certain charismatic groups still make a lot of noise about it. But is it true? Have you found it to be true? Has being or becoming a Christian inoculated you from all of life's ills and sorrows and setbacks, diseases and heartaches? Of course not. 
This is pure, unadulterated, unbiblical nonsense. Christianity is no magic wand that you wave around and can use to zap all of life's enemies. And by now you surely know that. And if you do, you also know it's not because you have a case of weak faith, little faith, or no faith. No, it's because you have experienced life as the psalmist experienced it as well ages ago. Have you ever taken a really close look at what the psalmist writes in the book of Psalms? Do you realize that one-third of the entire book is made up of psalms of lament? And that means really that they're filled with pain and hurt, sorrow, frustration, anger, even disgust. In them we meet a man of God who often struggles, who's frequently burdened, who's upset quite often, and who sometimes lashes out. And that's not exactly a pretty picture. And yet... These are not psalms to avoid or to walk away from. And we need to realize that ultimately they come from God, the Holy Spirit, and thus these are are psalms to pick up, to read, to learn from, and even if necessary to wrestle with and to struggle through. And we're going to do a little of that this morning. We're going to do some wrestling together. We're going to wrestle through one of these unknown lament psalms. So turn with me to Psalm 13 and to its deep question. How long, O Lord? Well, beloved, this psalm, this Psalm 13 opens, and it doesn't take long to figure out this, is a psalm of complaint. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Because here the repetition sets the tone. How long, how long, how long? It's like one hammer blow after another. And it tells you the psalmist is in trouble. Being a child of God hasn't spared him. No, he he hurts, he, he feels abandoned, he feels conflicted, he feels targeted. And who is this? Well, from the little print above the psalm, you can tell it's David. David is the one who is speaking and writing here. But why is is he speaking like this, you ask? What's his problem? Well, to be honest, we don't know. Chuck Swindoll may know, but we don't really know because the Bible doesn't tell us. All that we know is that once again, David finds himself in a real and royal fix. But then throughout his life, he's been in many bad fixes caused by so many enemies, whether lions or bears or Goliath or Philistines or Saul or Absalom and a host of other enemies. 
So we don't really know the exact nature of the problem here. And at bottom, that's because the Holy Spirit figures that we really don't need to know. Obviously, he doesn't want us so much to dissect the problem as he wants us to examine the reaction. And the reaction is first and foremost one of anguish and distress. David's life is full of troubles. Threefold trouble. First, look at this trouble with God. Verse 1, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? You see, there's this real sense of the absence of God. He's he's left. He's gone. He's departed. He's forgotten me. And second, David is troubled with himself. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and, and every day have sorrow in my heart? There's this deep anxiety within. His heart is in turmoil. And third, he has trouble with his enemies. How long will my enemy triumph over me? These people are always wagging their fingers at me, shouting at me, mocking me. What an awful situation this is. Only it's not a completely foreign one. There are times when you and I too may relate to some or perhaps all of these troubles described here. Trouble with God, trouble with yourself, trouble with people around you. How often do we not experience that? But then too there is little doubt that of all of these troubles the first one is the worst. The most devastating, how long is the first one? The feeling of, of God's absence. Cuts deeper than all the rest. Inner turmoil is tough. Being mocked by others around you is upsetting, but, but being God forsaken is almost beyond description. Isn't that, for example, what we learn from the book of Job? Here's this really rich, pious man who serves God with all his heart. You can tell from the early descriptions, he says his prayers, reads his Bibles, gives his tithe, goes to church, lives his faith, loves his wife, treasures his children, and is esteemed by everybody. He is the ideal man. But then disaster strikes. A whole series of them. And one day his his oxen, his sheep, his camels disappear. His servants are killed. His children, all of them die. His wealth evaporates. His loved ones are gone. And next, his house comes under attack. Job is a man under siege. And notice he's also a man of ever-increasing isolation. First, his wife turns on him and tells him, why don't you just shrivel up and die? 
And then his neighbors reject him because he looks a sight. And lastly, his best friends come along and they point their fingers at him and tell him to confess, 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 because there has to be some secret sin in his life that's at the bottom of all of his troubles. So Job's circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And it all hurts. But what hurts most is when he can no longer sense God. When he can't feel his presence. When he he doesn't answer. And in bitter anguish, he, he laments, why do you hide your face? Job feels abandoned and forgotten by God. And that's what really gets to him. And you can see it gets to the psalmist too. He, he too can't stand the silence of God. He, he too long, wonders how long does he have to wait. The, the, the cry, how long, reminds us that faith is not so much about blowing up as it is about wearing out. We wear out as we wait. We get tired of God's delays. We confront Him with His timing or His lack of it. Oh, and just in case you thought this was purely an Old Testament thing, I would remind you, it's not. Think of our Savior Jesus Christ on the cross. My my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten all about me? And don't you remember the souls under the altar in the book of Revelation? How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? You see, the cry, how long, O Lord, has often been the cry of the church in both the Old and New Testament. And I dare say it's still the cry of the church in many places today. Places where there's persecution and oppression. In places where there's unrest and murder and terrorism. And all kinds of other nasty things like what happens in Haiti and Indonesia and Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's also the cry of believers whenever they find themselves in sickness and in sorrow and sadness and distress. The church and the people of God cry out to God, how long? But then notice they also do something else. You see that in the next part of the psalm, that they have the gall to to not only cry out, but also to confront God. Look on me and answer, O Lord, my God. What that tells you is that people of God are not prepared to accept the forgetfulness and the hiddenness of God. They want to see Him. They want to look on Him. 
They want him to answer them. In short, they do not, as it were, strange as that may sound, they do not give up on God. And that too, beloved, is faith. You might say there's a certain doggedness about it. You see it with David, you see it with Job, you you see it with the Lord Jesus during the days of Jesus' life on earth. Hebrews writes, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. There's a certain saying which goes like this, when the going gets tough, the tough are the saints get going. Well, you can see that here. Faith, the faith works by the Holy Spirit has this innate stubbornness to it. It keeps on clinging. It keeps on calling out. It gives, as Isaiah says in chapter 62, it gives God no rest. But something else as well. For not only does faith in God give him no rest, it also gives him an argument. Job is good at this, and so is the psalmist. You know, in the verses 3 and 4 of the short psalm, he gives at least three reasons why, why God should, should look and answer. And they all come under the umbrella of the word last, or you could say the more modern expression, or else. One, give light to my eyes, or else I will sleep in death. Two, Lord, give light to my eyes, or else my enemies will say I have overcome him. And three, give light or else my foes will rejoice when I fall. You know, elsewhere in Isaiah 1 verse 18, the Lord invites his people to come now, let us reason together. And that's the invitation that the psalmist picks up here. He, he reasons with God. He puts on his thinking cap and he tells God that there's just no way that he can keep on ignoring him and refuse to answer him. He has to respond. If not, my life will end in death. Your plans will go up in smoke. If not, my enemies and your enemies too will gloat and rejoice over us. Taken together, beloved, it's all a good reminder that faith is not just a matter of feeling. It's also a matter of thinking. It involves our affections, but also our arguments. In the verses 1 and 2, you get what you might describe as an emotional outburst. But what you get in the verses 3 and 4 is an exercise in holy logic. It's all a reminder that God, what he wants from us is more than just the tears from our eyes. He also wants the arguments from our lips. But then, beloved, if faith yearns for God and wrestles with God, it also does one more thing. It finds rest in God. 
Verse 5 opens, and what do we meet but a great big but? It's the but of faith. You know, it all appears helpless and hopeless. When we have run out of tears and exhausted all of our arguments, there is only one thing left. And that's to resort to the but of faith. You might say, here we come to the bottom line. Here we come to the root and the heart of it all. Some of you may have experienced that in one form or in one situation or another. Perhaps you heard it in your marriage. Your wife says to you one day, you're such a lousy husband. You have so little time for me. You don't appreciate everything I do for you. You hardly ever hold me. All you ever do is work, work, work. But I still love you. And instinctively you know that that but, that one word, makes all the difference in the world. Because that but means there's still hope. You may be the world's poorest excuse for a husband. But as long as your wife still loves you, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And now, beloved, the same thing can be said of this this but in our text as well. It makes all the difference in the world. And in what way does it do so well? Because of it and because of what comes after it. But, says the psalmist, but I trust in your unfailing love. Notice, this is not about trusting in myself. It's not about looking inward. It's not about self-esteem. No, it's about trusting in God. And in one of His greatest, most marvelous qualities. The Nive text here takes this quality and it translates it as unfailing love. But I trust in your unfailing love. The, the old RSV and the new ESV have steadfast love. The NASB has loving kindness and the old King James has mercy. Now all of those English renderings try to capture the meaning of one Hebrew word and it's the word chesed. Not chesed, but chesed. You have to say it carefully or else you'll spit. So what's chesed? It's this marvelous, indescribable, wonderful quality that God possesses and that lies at the root of his relationship with us. It makes a covenant relationship possible with him. It's the motive, the the driving force, the glue in our life with God. And you can see that if you turn with me to a few scripture passages. Think, for example, of Exodus 34, the verses 6 and 7. The context is one of rebellion and idolatry. 
In Exodus 34, Israel is camped before Mount Sinai. God is above the mountain. Moses is on the mountain. Israel is below the mountain. And Israel, Israel is busy. He's busy making a bull calf of gold. You might say above there's revelation, below there's revolution. What a contrast. And what a mess. You know, disgusted and desperate, Moses intervenes. He pleads with God. And then in the midst of all of this to and fro, God reveals himself. He, he tells Moses, the people and us, just who he is. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. You see here, God reveals himself as abounding in love, abundant in chesed. And because he's so full of chesed, He forgives these silly, stubborn, stupid Israelites. And indeed, he does more than just abound in it. He delights in it. You read that at the end of Micah. He delights to show mercy. That's our God. He he delights to show chesed. And one more thing. God is stubborn. When it comes to his chesed. Psalm 23 closes with the promise. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In some ways that translation is kind of weak and limp. For literally it says that God's goodness and God's chesed will pursue me. All the days of my life. That's the same as saying God is not going to give up on me. His his chesed, his love, his loving kindness, his mercy will not allow it. Because of that wonderful quality, he will run after me. And he will chase me down. And so then, beloved, it's no wonder that David says here in Psalm 13, but, but I trust in your chesed. Oh God, you've said you wouldn't leave us. Oh God, time and time again you've committed yourself to this people. Oh God, you've even given us your one and only Son as a sacrifice for all of our sins. God's chesed. It's something we can always appeal to. And you see here, David does. And from it, everything else flows. Rejoicing and singing, thanksgiving and gratitude. God may not answer me today. God may not answer me tomorrow. But one day, He will. He has to. His chesed guarantees it.
And as a result, beloved, despair in this psalm doesn't have the final word. There's hope for David, there's hope for Israel, there's hope for you and I. God's loving kindness, his unfailing love will make the music come back in our lives. He doesn't forget us. He doesn't hide his face from us forever, no matter how deep our troubles or our sorrows. He'll answer us from his holy hill. He will show us his salvation. And he has, hasn't he? In Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, in his birth, in his work, in his life, in his death, in his sacrifice, in his ongoing ministry at the right hand of the Father. In all of that. You see, God hears and God answers. And because God hears and answers, we can still sing. David says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. I'll sing about his mercy. I'll sing about his chesed. I'll sing about his son, Jesus Christ. How long, O Lord? Not so long that we are without hope and good confidence. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.